Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, Ella. Good good, morning. And good morning, Grace. We have Grace Tan with us in the studio this morning, uh, our new member of Wednesday Breakfast. Yes, good morning. Hi. (laughs) I'm a bit nervous to be here. And yeah, to everyone who's just listening in, my name is Grace and um, I'm actually going to be joining Wednesday Breakfast very soon. But yeah, I'm currently still under training, but I'm just here for the first time. Very nervous. Excited to be here. Yeah, yes, we're all excited to have you here. Very exciting. And you've been helping out a lot with the production side of things, which has been a great support. Yeah, it's great to have three of us again in the studio. Yes, absolutely. I just had to flick three mics on. It was an unusual feeling <laughs> yeah. after a while. Extra buzz. <laughs> and we also have a live guest coming in this morning. So, yeah, it's all happening yeah, here on Wednesday. Yeah, in a while. Mm. <laughs> absolutely. And how have you been, Ella? Yeah, I've been well. Um, I've just been, um, yeah, settling in with my new housemate at home. So I've had a bit of a transition at home. It's been nice. I think when I moved into my current place, my previous housemate was already planning to leave in a few months. So I almost feel like I've been waiting for the next person to really properly settle in and do those things like getting stuck into the garden and planning yeah, a painting just we're doing at the moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to um, thrive off of her new house energy. You know, you always have that when you move to a new place. She's very energetic and enthusiastic. So I'm trying to make the most of that to motivate myself, I think. Um, but yeah, it's going well. <laughs> that sounds excellent. And you called your dad on Father's Day? I did, yeah. He um, was in Europe, actually. He's visiting his dad. Um, so it wasn't officially Father's Day for him, but I still made the call. Mm. <laughs> And where does Malaysia sit with Father's Day? Is that Northern Hemisphere, Grace, or Southern Hemisphere? Because I know that the dates are different in yeah. the Northern Hemisphere. Um, I yes. think um, for Malaysia, we are actually about two hours behind Australia. So I I think it's more of like a Northern Hemisphere thing, yeah. And uh, I mean, to be honest, I actually forgot it was Father's Day. <laughs> So I did not um, have a wish my dad, actually. So I'll probably do that very soon today, later, <laughs> even if it's a bit late. But, you know, every day is Father's Day. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I had a really nice day with uh, my dad and my sister. And we sat outside in his courtyard, caught a bit of the early spring sunshine. We had a, a late lunch. And, uh, yeah, it was really nice just to chat and relax. And he's only been in Melbourne for a year. He moved over from Perth. So seeing him settled was really nice. Yeah, last year was lockdown, I think. Yeah, tough time to move, but I'm Mm. sure it helps having family here. Yeah, it was the first um, Father's Day that we'd sort of been able to be together with him in Melbourne. So, yeah, lovely. Excellent. 
And we've got a busy show today, but before we get onto the um, agenda, shall we talk about the child care rally? Yeah, that's right. We're hoping to rack your brain, Grace, because we know you've done a little bit of research, which has been great. Um, and of course, yeah, there's rallies planned around Australia today for early childhood education. Um, so yeah, I think we'll unpack that a little bit. Um, maybe you can start off by telling us some of the main issues they're hoping to address today with the rallies, Grace. Yep. So there will be a action called Big Steps that will be a rally that's happening around Australia today. Um, it's actually where early childhood educators around Australia, they're taking on the streets to demand for the government to value early learning by raising educators' wages. And this will be happening for those who are in Melbourne at the Fat Square. It will actually be starting at 3 p.m., but you can all start gathering at 2.30 onwards. And to register your support for the educators and to find a rally near you, you can go to bigsteps.org.au slash shut dash down dash d dash sectors that slash. So... The early child educators are basically going around to demand change because they are the backbone of our society. Without them, you will not be able to get the education and the learning that you need. So they're they're going around to demand for this and they want their their educators' wages to be raised. Yeah, I think um, childcare workers and early childhood education workers, I should say, um, like a lot of um, other industries which uh, involve caretaking and often a lot of women have been pretty unhappy for a while and we've maybe seen it um, kind of reach boiling point in the last couple of years with the pandemic. But I think there are issues that have been around for a long time. Um, I think they did a survey recently. Is that right, Grace? What do we know about how childcare workers are feeling? Yep. So actually, so basically, just yesterday on Tuesday's breakfast show, um, we talk. Um, our people talk to uh, childhood edu- childhood education workers, and they shared their experience about um, them being uh, working around here, especially during the pandemic. And there was actually a report that was um, was released recently that was talking about how about at least ten thousands of more. Um, childhood, uh, childhood education workers f- feel um, that they always want to quit their job and they some of them probably already did but most of them there's a lot of them who felt like they want to leave their job every time so you can really in from that report it kind of really just shows um, how hectic and dire the situation is for childhood education workers and the pandemic just made it worse and uh, they just feel like quitting and obviously the wages the low the wages that is not being at the demand that they deserve it's really tearing down them a lot yeah absolutely it doesn't make you feel valued in your job um and i think um I mean, I do disability support, which is different, but it is also a care role and um, it can be really taxing. It can be really fun and really easy, but it can also take a lot out of you. And I think when you do a role like that and you're not, um, yeah, receiving a fair wage, um, it leaves you feeling extra exhausted. I think um, looking after multiple children at any one time would be incredibly da- challenging. Yeah, <laughs> all I could say. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, they do a fantastic job 
to show up and uh, to be there and do the the multitasking because I think uh, at the earlier level you you're dealing a lot with physical needs of children as well yeah. as emotional mm-hmm. needs and then educational needs as well so it's a very multifaceted role and yeah uh, you know you're on your feet all day really. yeah absolutely and I think a lot Bending, of um, lifting a lot of people are mums themselves so you know you spend all day working and uh, looking after children and then you still have to have the energy and yeah. use those same skills when you go home um so yeah I think it's yeah. time we start valuing it hopefully mm. we, um yeah get some results from the rally today it'll be interesting to see how it goes um, we were hoping to speak to United Workers Union this morning. Unfortunately, they've um, got a busy morning with the rally today, but I'm hoping we can get a hold of them next week and, yeah, we can ask them some more questions, Grace. Yeah. Hopefully we'll be able to just discuss more on what happened today, next week. Yeah. And so, there might be some outcomes as well to report on. Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Grace. Yeah, thanks, Grace. I nice. um, enjoyed our first breakfast chat with you. Looking forward to some more. Yes. <laughs> this time, I'm so happy to start <laughs> here like this. Got to go for more. Excellent. Absolutely. <laughs> and so what do we have on yeah. for the show today? Um, I think so you're first this morning. Get into the schedule. Yeah, that's right. I'm first up today. I'll be speaking to another Ella, actually. I think it's my first other Ella on the show. <laughs> um, Ella She from the Migrant Workers Centre is going to join us. Um, so she's going to chat to us about labour exploitation of migrant workers. Um, the Migrant Workers Centre have an online training on today, so they're going to look at the issue, uh, look at some key points around it, how to identify it and what you can do. Um, So, yeah, that should be a really informative chat to start the morning. Um, And then a little later on in the show, we're going to hear from In Your Face, our favourites at the moment. Um, So James spoke with Matto Lucas um, about the Impossible Dance photo exhibition featuring queer communities in a pre-COVID world. Um, And, yeah, that's been showing in St Kilda. Um, So I'm here to hear, keen to hear about that as well. That sounds really interesting. I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah, over in your neck of the woods, Claudia. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. I look forward to getting the details. And then at around quarter to eight or ten to eight, we're going to have a live guest in our studio. So another exciting uh, moment this morning. We haven't had very many live guests since the pandemic. So we have Diana Said, the CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights, joining us. And she's going to be talking about an event taking place at the Wheeler Centre next week called Art, War and Another Afghanistan. It's a creative uh, celebration and reflection on uh, Afghanistan and speaking with a panel of, uh, of different creative um, Afghan artists who will be talking about what they've been doing in, in that space and really looking forward to having that chat with her. And then to round off the show at uh, just after eight, we'll be talking with Michael Simmons. He's a mental health uh, advocate and worker and he's going to be talking about his new venture, Mental Health a Safety Net, which is a local charity he set up on the Mornington Peninsula to uh, educate people on uh, prevention of suicide and uh, yeah he'll be coming in uh, to talk to us ahead of are you okay day tomorrow excellent sounds like a good show can't wait to have our first guest in (laughs) absolutely 
Um, let's take a very quick break. And yeah, when we come back, we're going to hear about labor exploitation of migrant workers. The Seoul Must Me Center for Performing Arts and Monica Singh Sangwan present a year-long season of solo and group Odyssey dance performances on Saturday, September 17th and 24th at Dance House and October 1st at Fairfield Amphitheatre. All shows will be accompanied by our live Odyssey music ensemble. Odyssey is an Indian classical dance style that is both traditional and contemporary in its intrinsic nature. Join us for what can only be described as a pilgrimage where the dancer and musicians merge together as co-performers. Tickets available via our website, sohamasmi.org. This project has been financially supported by Regional Arts Victoria and Creative Victoria. We also acknowledge Dance House, Multicultural Arts Victoria and 3CR Community Radio as supporters in this endeavour. Thursday, September 8 is Are You OK Day? A reminder that every day is the day to check in with your friends, family and colleagues and ask, are you OK? Research has shown four out of ten Australians hold back because they feel it's a conversation for an expert. But you've got what it takes to support your loved ones by simply listening and showing that you care. No qualifications needed. Find out how you can get involved at areyouok.org.au. A conversation could change your life. A 3CR supporter. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs, and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers. And all. So it went for Joseph Wong. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children aged three and four can access 15 hours per week of free kindergarten. In a kinder program, children learn through play, art, music and dance. Qualified teachers create culturally safe places for Aboriginal children and families. Koori Kids Shine at Kindergarten. Find out more at vic.gov.au forward slash koori dash kids dash shine. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast and next up this morning we're going to talk to the Migrant Workers Centre about an online training they have on today, First Line of Defence, Recognising and Responding to Labour Exploitation of Migrant Workers. So we're joined this morning by Ella Shee from the Migrant Workers Centre. Good morning and welcome to breakfast, Ella. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. Um, Now, before we get into the training you've got on today, I wondered if you could start off by just telling us a bit about the Migrant Workers Centre. Yeah, absolutely. So we're an organisation based uh, in Melbourne, and our mission is to assist workers who were born overseas, um, and primarily that means workers on visas, and, and these days mostly temporary visas, uh, with any workplace issues around wage theft, um, exploitation, uh, also with things if they've been injured at work, um, you know, how to seek assistance or work cover, um, and to sort of provide general advice and referrals as well if it's something we can't help with. 
Uh, we also create a number of translated resources um, and also offer training sessions and information sessions like this one. Excellent. So you raise awareness, but you also provide support on an individual level. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's those two branches of work. Um, we also do a lot of lobbying and research and campaigning as well. So, yeah, really it's those three branches of work that sort of come together um, to sort of try and change the system as well beyond just helping individual yeah, workers. Excellent. And is you're based in Melbourne. Is um, it just in Melbourne that you work or do you also provide support to um, people elsewhere in the country? Um, we primarily assist workers in Victoria. Uh, I guess that's sort of our main mission. Um, we've certainly had cases you know, come to us from other states um, where perhaps there isn't support readily available for various reasons. Sometimes it's because of language, um, sort of translation uh, abilities. We have a team that speaks quite a few languages. Um, but we often also work really closely with union movements um, and organisations in other states as well. So it can definitely provide referrals if need be. Great. All right, and um, let's talk about the issue at hand, um, labour exploitation of migrant workers. Um, can you tell us a little about what we know about labour exploitation of migrant workers and why they might be at greater risk? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of labour exploitation, often the things that first you know, come to mind are wage theft or someone not being paid the minimum wage, um, but it also manifests um, perhaps in less obvious ways as well. So, for example, someone not receiving the correct amount of superannuation um, you know, or sick or annual leave. And often this doesn't really, you know, emerge until the worker tries to leave the workplace, um, you know, and realise that, you know, their superannuation hasn't been paid. Uh, it also manifests in, for example, overtime not being paid or people being incorrectly classified on their awards. So, um, you know, perhaps at first glance it can seem like everything's above board, but when you ask with more questions, uh, it becomes evident that something's not quite right. Um, so that's, yeah, sort of how it manifests. Right. And um, are there any particular industries or areas that are um, uh, most guilty of this? Or Yeah, it's hard to, it can be hard to pinpoint sometimes. Um, you know, often we find that if a worker in a particular industry comes to us, they'll talk to their friends or, you know, colleagues who work in a similar workplace. Um, but we definitely see a lot of people, um, you know, in hospitality, um, in retail, um, across the board, really, uh, for a while, we had a lot of people who'd gone through, um, you know, working on farms um, or also just in regional areas where perhaps support services are, or information services are less readily available. So it can be hard to pinpoint a specific industry that perhaps is, um, you know, more guilty of this than others. But I think the key takeaway is, you know, exploitation can you know, happen anywhere. It's not necessarily just in, you know, retail or, you know, with baristas. I um, mean, you know, it can definitely happen in also... Um, Perhaps what we consider, you know, the more professionalised roles as well. You know, we've seen, we've heard from architects and people working in offices as well. So it can really happen anywhere, which is why it's so important to be able to identify the signs of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do we know how common labour exploitation is? Yeah, so we ran a, a research survey last year called Lives in Limbo, um, and our report found that actually 65% of respondents... Um, Rural migrant workers had experienced some kind of wage theft, and one in four had experienced some other kind of labour exploitation, whether that was harassment or bullying at work or being pressured to work on public holidays or overtime. So it's, you know, it's not a stretch to say the majority of migrant workers have experienced some kind of you know, wage theft or exploitation. Yeah, well, that's massive. 
Um, yeah. Do we know how that compares to um, labour exploitation of um, workers who aren't migrants? Yeah, um, I don't have. It's, it's hard again to pinpoint an exact number, but I think a key exacerbating factor that we have found is workers who have a temporary visa or a precarious visa status. Um, and what we mean by that is, um, you know, someone who is on a visa, for example, a working holiday visa or a student visa that doesn't have a pathway to permanent residency. And one really sort of damning statistic that came up in this research as well was that. 90% of the respondents who had experienced wage theft in Australia had first arrived on a temporary visa that didn't have a pathway to permanency. So I think there's a very clear link between the kind of visa you're on, um, you know, and sort of, I guess, your access to support services or maybe how confident you feel to pursue, um, you know, your rights when something goes wrong. Yeah, so you're saying the um, more tenuous your visa is or less secure um, your place is, the yeah, more um, likely you are. Um, and I guess um, uh, this doesn't just place you at increased risk of being exploited, but it also makes it harder when it comes to accessing support. Yeah, definitely. Um, often we find that, I guess a common or assumption is that, you know, it's because workers, um, there's language barriers or workers don't understand their rights. And definitely in some cases that can be a barrier to accessing support. Um, but often it's also more to do with, you know, structural issues itself, so around visa precarity, around fear of not being able to find another job as well. Um, and also, for example, with uh, a, a sort of area we're very concerned with right now is workers on um, sort of employer-sponsored skilled visas where they have to fulfill certain work requirements and stay with a certain employer for a period of time to be eligible for permanent residency or a longer visa. Um, and that's also a huge area, you know, where workers become very vulnerable um, to a particular employer. But I think the key thing to emphasise is it's not sort of being a migrant that makes someone, you know, inherently vulnerable. It's sort of a system of manufactured vulnerability where there are so many barriers or limitations that stop workers really, you know, pursuing their rights. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the systems in place which um, make workers more vulnerable rather than their um, being a migrant, obviously. <laughs> and... Yeah. Um, uh, you spoke a bit about um, uh, identifying exploitation and knowing when you see it, um, and I wonder um, how uh, that factors in in terms of our perceptions of labour exploitation. I think we have this idea that it'll be really obvious, um, but I imagine it can um, also be much more subtle sometimes, and that can make it harder to identify. Yeah, definitely. So uh, a good example... Um I can give is we had a worker come to us a while ago who was he basically worked at the supermarket for about four years was doing regular 12-hour shifts sometimes seven days a week I um, mean he was being paid a flat rate with no overtime so this is an example where perhaps you know if somebody had casually asked um, you know what's your hourly pay like um, he may have responded with um, you know whatever it was and it would have seemed you know oh that seems fine it all seems above board but when you sort of ask um, a few more questions, go a bit deeper, you think, oh, wait a second, you know, someone shouldn't be receiving a flat rate for 12 hours um, a day or they shouldn't be working seven days a week. And it's often when, not until you get into the details that, you know, sort of where the wage theft is happening, where the employer might be, you know, cutting corners and exploiting the worker. It's not until you ask those questions that that sort of emerges. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... Um uh, often, you know, workers can be harassed or intimidated, but often um, exploitation can happen through, yeah, just a 
culture that's um, put in place in a workplace or yeah, um, the way it's discussed. Um, yeah, that also brings to mind, I think another example we often see is, um, you know, workers are being paid a particular minimum wage for working, say, in the cleaning industry um, or, you know, at, at a cafe or a restaurant. But often it also means that, you know, that the duties that they've been asked to do is actually a bit beyond what they've been hired to do or they've been uh, incorrectly classified in their awards. So, you know, on a surface level, it sounds like everything's fine, but, you know, so until we can dig a bit deeper and really understand the nature of their role, um, that becomes more evident. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, and can you tell us a bit about the training that's on today? Yeah, absolutely. So it's part of our new Solidarity Hour series, um, which is a workshop that will take place every month uh, with a different topic uh, pertaining to workplace rights, industrial rights, um, and with a lens specifically with assisting migrant workers. So uh, our session today is our first session, and it's called First Line of Defence, um, Recognising and Responding to Labour Exploitation. Uh, it's a free online session, uh, and anyone can come, but this one is particularly targeted at, any, uh, I guess, migrant community leaders, um, anyone who works in sort of community services, health workers, um, you know, activists or organisers, if you're part of any kind of community groups, um, or anyone who regularly interacts or comes into contact, you know, with migrant workers, you know, perhaps even tutors, um, teachers. Uh, and I guess that was a very long list for, you know, who the audience might be, but I think that just goes to show that, you know, there are migrant workers who are everywhere who are part of our communities um, and, you know, there's very little chance that you work or are a part of a community where you aren't engaging with migrant workers. So... Yeah, it's a session that's really just about those basic rights and how to identify um, when something might be wrong. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like it needs to be a long list. <laughs> and um, how can people attend if they want to get along? It's The uh, training session is online, right? Yeah, so it'll be all online um, and you can find the event on our website so at migrantworkers.org.au. Uh, there's an events button, but it's forward slash first line of defence. Uh, but it's also under the events tab on our website. So you can RSVP there. It's definitely not too late. Um, and, they'll, yeah, it'll be online. Great. Sounds like a really important event. All right. And um, lastly, um, how can people access support um, if they think they're being exploited? And um, also, where's the best um, place to turn to if uh, it's something you've identified in a workplace or you suspect someone else is being exploited? What are the best resources you can recommend in addition to Migrant Workers Centre, of course? <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, so we have uh, a make an appointment option on our website as well as a list of resources. So if people do want to come to us, um, it's quite easy to do that. We have about eight or nine languages um, available and also translation services. Uh, and there's also a list of referrals on our website if it's something that we can't quite help with. Um, and the most important thing to do, you know, if you think you or someone you know is experiencing workplace exploitation, um, you know, definitely keep records of any shifts you've worked, you know, as much documentation as you can about your employment, even if it's screenshots of text messages, um, even if it's writing down in like a diary, um, you know, what's happened or what you think might be happening, any comments that you think were discriminatory and just keeping records of those um, and making sure you have all of that when you, you know, come to an appointment or go to seek help. Excellent. All right. Um, that sounds great. Thanks so much for your time this morning, Ella. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And good luck with the session today. Thank you. 
And that was Ella Shee from the Migrant Workers Centre uh, talking to us about the labour exploitation of migrant workers, um, an issue they're going to be addressing in an online training session today. Uh, so that's on uh, held today at midday, so you can even get along and attend in your lunch break, um, and we'll post a link to it on our Wednesday Brekkie page. Um, we'll be back with you shortly. You're listening to 3CR. All the way from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and touring Australia for the very first time is folk duo Watch House, formerly known as Mandolin Orange. From coffee houses to major festivals, Watch House has played it all with their heavenly harmonies, songs, and music. Watch House play the Melbourne Recital Centre 11th of October with support from the wonderful Charm of Finches. Also playing at Out on the Weekend at Seaworks in Williamstown, 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Brave men fall with the battle cry. Tears fill the eyes of their loved ones and their brothers. So it went.
You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. We just heard The Cruel Sea with This Is Not The Way Home. Um, and now I'm going to hand over to James in a segment originally broadcast on In Your Face. Joined by Maddo Lucas, whose fabulous exhibition, Impossible Dance, uh, opened yesterday at the Victorian Pride Centre, all about queer community in a pre-COVID world. Maddo, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi, James. Tell us about your fabulous photos in the exhibition. So the exhibition's on at the Pride Centre until October, and it includes a range of different photographic works um, from a series, a project series, Impossible Dance, uh, of mine, which had multiple sites. So once uh, at the substation and um, various other galleries, Brunswick Street Gallery, and they've all come uh, together for this this one, the Impossible Dance uh, definitive edition at the Pride Centre. And I absolutely love the promo photo that I got a copy of, which features the iconic community legend Yvonne Gardner, who passed away in 2018, but a fabulous yep. black and white shot. Thank uh, you. Tell us about that photo uh, with Yvonne. You took it, yeah? Yes, yes. Um, so that was at the very first Slow Dance Social event. Um, I think back in, that might have been 2016, maybe 2015. I uh, don't have the date on the top of my head. But, you know, Yvonne was always so generous, um, especially with photography and being photographed and having a good time. And um, every time I'd see her at an event, um, she was always just really, really generous. But I really love that shot specifically because it's kind of anachronistic. It it almost looks like it might be from, you know, the 1920s or something. Um. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, she would have been in her early 70s when that photo was taken. Yeah. And she was just loving it on the dance floor. Yes, always. Every time she was at an event, she was always having a great time. So tell us about some of the other folks that you photographed. Um, so the, the works include images from the past, um, Just it's just over 15 years of my event photography practice, um, and they range in um, from, like, you know, trough parties to barber to closet, um, slow dance social events, other community events as well. There's a whole range of different events. So even though they're all black and white, I think a patron last night at the opening said, oh, I thought they were from, like, the one event. Um, but no, they're from 50, around 15 years and all different kinds of, of queer community events. So they sound quite timeless. Hopefully. I mean, I'm I'm really inspired by William Yang, but also Rennie Ellis. Um, and I, that's kind of why I've tried to uh, create these anachronistic, timeless documentation, black and white. Yeah. So they're, they're photos that span 15 years. God, in the queer world, that's quite a few eras almost. That's certainly straddling <laughs> several. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, time flies. Like, it, it feels crazy to go back through my archive. And when I was uh, putting the show together in 2020 in lockdown, going through all these kind of external hard drives, it was like, oh, I swear I just shot that yesterday. But then there was, you know, shots from 2012. And it just it felt really strange. So I, I guess time does fly when you're, you know, having fun. So this would have been a really exciting project for you to work on during lockdowns. Uh, it must have been yeah. kind of exhilarating, you know, being in this kind of, you know, insular world, but going through these, you know, periods of our history and seeing all these amazing characters. You must have kind of gone down a wonderful, rabbit hole with it all yeah it was it was kind of bittersweet because at the time you know during lockdown i was really missing you know going out to parties and photographing community and being in connection with community so it was a bit of a a a way to survive that isolation um and that quarantine so it kind of had a bit of a bittersweet edge but what came about was this amazing um celebration and just being able to go wow you know i've shot a lot of incredible events and photographed a lot of beautiful people and and have all these great moments. So let's try and share them back out with the community. Wow. So you must have relived a lot of feelings. Yeah, yeah. It was a very, like, actually putting, curating the shots together and which ones would be printed, uh, what shots, um, you know, never need to see the light of day or what needs to be printed as a giant banner um, was a pretty emotional thing. It it really, it was, um, yeah, very moving to do that. So tell us about some of those emotions. I mean, some of them would have been great and some of them would have been kind of a bit, there would have been some grief. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, the Yvonne one's a really great example because, um, you know, unfortunately she did pass and everyone has uh, such great memories of her. And this, this image in itself, um, you know, it's a moment where she's sitting down, but she's dancing still. She has her arm up in the air and she's looking down. But she almost has a furrowed brow, so there's sort of a push and pull between celebration and mourning. Um, so it is that that kind of, yeah, bit of sweetness of, oh, I remember this party before that venue got shut down, or I remember this event before that venue got turned into apartment blocks. So there's, there's always this kind of sweet um, but sad nostalgia. Um, but in terms of, you know, fun and rocket, the, the photography does include some um, salacious <laughs> images. I call them tasteful nudes from the dance floor um, as well. So there is a, there is a fun element to the, sh- to the show. Wow, what a great part of our history. And I'm sensing uh, you know, parts of our lost queer history as well, uh, which people are really looking at pretty closely at the moment because we have lost so much. We've lost you know, yes. so many people, but also so many spaces. Yes. Definitely. And that's the other thing. Um, I feel really privileged to be able to document and keep a a growing living archive of our queer spaces and queer parties, like events that maybe pop up for a year or two and then disappear. So, yeah. So how many photos are there in your Impossible Dance exhibition? Um, Okay, so there's six large-scale banners, larger-than-life, overwhelmingly huge two-metre-by-two-metre banners, there's two smaller banners and then there's four framed works. And then last night at the launch, I was uh, giving away free little six by four kind of happy snap black and whites for patrons to take. So if there's any left down at the Pride Centre, people are, are welcome to take the smaller ones that are scattered around. But I think they all might be gone. So those banners, do they have lots of little photos on them? No, no. So each large banner only has um, one image on them. Um and so, I mean, you know, it's a very 
uh, curated selection of images, and it's it's not a definitive um, exhibition. So I imagine, obviously, as my uh, photography event um, archive grows, obviously Impossible Dance might continue in another 10 years. There might be a, another um, version of this with different shots. Well, yeah, this just sounds like, you know, a drop in the bucket of the number of photos that you actually have. It sounds like you're kind yeah. of seeing on a vault. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I can't, you know, print and exhibit them all in one go. I have to, have to, you know, trickle it out for the years to come. <laughs> so how tough that must have been to decide on which photos to run with? Yes, incredibly difficult. But luckily we had, you know, seven lockdowns, so... <laughs> Yeah, you had a lot of time to kind of go over them. Now, look, I've got to ask, who else is photographed? Who else is in this exhibition apart from Yvonne? Oh, my God, there's so many people. And what's really funny is when we were look, we were hanging the show and Thomas Jaspers um, actually just was like, oh, I think that's the back of my head in one of the photos and realised he was accidentally in one of the artworks from, like, 2014 or 2015. But, um, you know, Betty Grumble features... Uh, performing, there's, oh God, there's um, Lazy Susan, drag queen backstage. Um, there's some anonymous characters. There's Rogan Richards is in one one shot as well. Um, there's a whole range. And I'm sure like the more time you spend kind of looking through, you go, oh, I remember that person. Or I think that's blah, blah, blah. Gee, you must have some great stories about being a photographer on the scene. Uh, yeah, great and also locked away in the vault. <laughs> Never to be told. <laughs> Never to see the light of day. So, Mano, I've got to ask, what's your favourite photo in Impossible Dance? Ah, oh, it's really hard. There's a lot that I'm very proud of. One of the images, the smaller images that's framed on the far wall, um, the booth wall at the Pride Centre, um, it won the Picturing Footscray Prize, photo prize in 2018, and it's a test shot I did at a party at Littlefoot Bar and Kitchen. They ran a party called Westgate. And I had just walked in and I was doing a lighting test with my flash. And that is the test shot to test my light. But it's just so... Um, there's a lot going on in it. <laughs> there's a lot of expressions and there's a lot of characters. And your eyes kind of dart around each person. And I think I really, I really love that shot a lot. Gee, you must have been to so many venues over the years as a seed photographer at very wee hours of the morning, but also yeah. during the day at day parties. What's your favourite ever event? Oh, God, I do love a day party. If I can get home before 10 and just be in bed, I mean, that's the age I'm getting to now. I, I love a day party. But there's been, I mean, each event, it's, it's such a strange you know, I've got to be in the right mentality to have a great time whilst photographing, but, you know, I can't be too tired if I think it's a good event, all that stuff. But I really like those events that you just don't expect something random to occur. Like, I, I loved shooting for Barber for the last 10 years, their parties. They would always have great performers on. Um, uh, James Andrews and um, Benjamin Hancock would always be dressed up in these outrageous kind of Huxley's outfits and I think that's really special at like 2 a.m. on a in a nightclub, uh, getting something very strange and absurd. I think that's fun. Is there any particular party that you wish would come back? Oh God, um, come back! I mean, I always love closet parties. They've been running for a long time, and they're really inclusive. They're always really fun. It feels very safe. 
Um, so I love a closet party. I will always put my hand up to shoot closet. But any parties that I mean, I miss. I already miss um, Club Eighty and, and Trough. I feel like that was a very specific um, era in time, and that was, that taught me a lot shooting that event and you know, about respectability and, and privacy of patrons and shooting nudes without shooting, you know, frontal nude, kind of uh, lending your lens to um, nudity without being too obnoxious. It was a really challenging gig, but it actually taught me a lot. So I, I really do miss Trough. Yeah, absolutely. I miss Trough as well. Do you really find yeah. that Club 80 is that venue that you miss the most? Because it is apartments now. Yeah, and it's so tragic. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But there's others as well. I mean, we lost the glass house, you know, years yep. ago, and that's, you know, just one of the you know iconic venues that we lost. But also, basically, the golden fifty meters on Commercial Road is gone. Yeah, completely. And when I first actually moved to Melbourne, that was, you know, where I first would go out down, you know, Market and. Um, uh, Priscilla's and all of those venues on commercial. And even, you know, the Greyhound, the largest drag stage um, in Melbourne is now an empty lot too. So all of these kind of important spaces being gentrified and knocked down to be uh, turned into apartments or whatever it is, is such a physical manifestation of us losing our history or losing um, connection. And that's also why I think the Pride Centre is pretty amazing to have a venue uh, a funded venue just for the community where, you know, I can exhibit, which is amazing. There's a theaterette, there's a, a bar going in and a cafe. Here's my hyenas is, is there. So it's it's pretty overwhelmingly amazing. But it's not the same as seedy clubs. No, I mean, once they open a dingy nightclub, I will be there every day. (laughs) So how did we get to this point, Matter, where we lost all of these venues? Is it just the case of, you know, areas being gentrified and greedy developers offering people just, you know, way too much money to refuse? Or is there something else at work? I think, I mean, I'm, I'm only 34, but I do think that, like, our digital lives have led queer people, younger queer people, to feel a lot more secure and safe in connecting with each other online. And I feel like that's the loss of physical space. I think we're, we're seeing people appreciate physical space more after COVID, after being isolated and having to be, you know, doing our, our gay parties on Zoom. It's not the same. But I feel like, yeah, gentrification always, you know, kills artists, kills uh, immigrants, kills teachers and kills queer people. Yeah, absolutely. And we're losing that physical touch from the venues as well, from a crowded dance floor. Yes, and I love a sweaty, crowded dance floor. Absolutely. So when you take photos, what's the what's the venue that you still love, that you still are able to go to and kind of, you know, club away at while you take oh, the pics? Oh, God. Is there one? Is, um, does that I mean, still exist? I always... Sorry? Does that still exist? Yeah, I mean, I always have a glass of Prosecco in one hand and the camera in the other. So that's, that's my method of shooting. But there's so many, like, um, there's lots of little parties or one-night kind of spaces at the moment. Um, I think Love Break has just started. It's like a one once-a-week party um, on Smith Street. And, you know, for a short time there, Rainbow House Club was pretty phenomenal and at the top of it, its game. Um, it really championed people of colour and trans people, and it felt like a real safe place. I, I shot for Rainbow for a while, and that was amazing. 
But um, I don't know. I mean, that's a, a t- there's plenty of incredible venues and pop-up spaces, but yeah. So, Mello, what other projects are you working on? I mean, it doesn't sound like you're going to be resting on your laurels. There must be something else in the pipeline. Uh, yeah, I've got a, I mean, I'm, I'm a classic over worker, so I, I lecture casually. Um, I am working on multiple kind of projects. I, back in, you know, when I was studying, I remember my mentor saying, you should be working on six paintings at the same time. So when you come back to the first painting, the paint's dry and you're ready to keep going. And that's kind of my philosophy with, with art and with projects. So there's always a lot of stuff happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So come on, tell us what else is boiling away. God, what am I working on? There's plenty. There's plenty I'm working on. But, you know, I'm a an Instagram, um, you know, I'm on there all the time. So if people follow my Instagram, I always promote what's happening and what's coming up and things like that. Fantastic. Well, Meadow Lucas, you should be very proud of Impossible Dance. It is showing at the uh, Victorian Pride Centre in St Kilda until October. Uh, It's a fabulous uh, photo exhibition of queer community in a pre-COVID world. Meadow, thanks so much for chatting with me today on 3CR. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, and we just heard from James on In Your Face talking to Matto Lucas about the exhibition on in St Kilda now. Um, so a big thank you to James for sharing that segment with us today. Uh, you can catch In Your Face on 3CR every Friday from 4 to 5pm. Uh, we'll be back with you shortly. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Music lovers rejoice. The magical Sierra Ferrell returns for a headline tour this October. Bringing a band and her unique style of old-time bluegrass and country music, they will be joined by the one and only Johnny Fritz plus the local Isles in the Drip for a huge night of good times at Thornbury Theatre on October 13th. Sierra Ferrell Band also playing at Menian Town Hall 14th of October and out on the weekend at Seaworks Williamstown 8th of October. Love Police, proud supporters of 3CR. Ceratotussock is an noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, Ceratotussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Ceratotussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit ceratotussock.com for more information. Salam be Hamegi. This is Jahan Khonlu from Salam Radio. Tune in 4 to 6 p.m. every Sunday on 3CR for a wide selection of modern music from the greater Middle East and beyond. We feature guests both locally and internationally based to help bring new sounds to you. For more information, please follow our Instagram at Salam Radio Show. So tune on in.
Every Wednesday at 11am, join me, Bunzolini, at the fire on Community Radio 3CR. Three hours of historically informed, critical analysis of Aboriginal affairs and the ongoing political movement for land rights, treaty, sovereignty and the cessation of genocide. Featuring the best of black music. Bundles Fire, 11am to 2pm, every Wednesday on Community Radio 3CR. Wah carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Taldum Chogo Edwards, for Balamois, a journey of stories, yarns and music about freedom and survival from 2pm to 3pm every Thursday afternoon on 3CR, 855 on your radio dial. As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of clapstick and the dancing And you're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast uh, with Ella, Grace and Claudia this morning. And I know listeners have been waiting to uh, hear our segment with Diana Sayed. Um, she's going to be joining us very shortly, but if you can stick around to a little bit after eight to hear that segment, that would be wonderful. And we're going to jump uh, to our segment with Michael Simmons talking about Are You OK Day? I just want to let listeners know that this segment will contain discussion of suicide and this uh, is obviously a distressing subject for some people. So if that might be triggering for you, you might want to tune out for the next 15 minutes. Okay, well tomorrow is Are You OK Day? the National Day of Action dedicated to reminding everyone that any day is the day to ask, are you okay, and support those struggling with life. But how do you know if someone is struggling and how do you start a conversation to find out if they need help? Our next guest, Michael Simmons, is a mental health advocate who started an organisation called Mental Health Safety Net to help people develop the skills to know when someone needs help and what to do. The charity is based on the Mornington Peninsula and has trained over 400 people since it began nearly a year ago. We speak to him now. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Claudia. Lovely to uh, have me on again. Yeah, we've spoken to you a couple of times uh, in your role at, at Holt, yep. but um, you've now gone out and started this new venture, so I'm really excited to hear about uh, why you started it and uh, what you're doing. Yes, so um, yeah, as you said, I was working with Holt and very much um, talking to tradies um, about mental health awareness. Um, unfortunately, we had a, uh, a couple of suicides in, uh, in close proximity and in the village that I live out on the Mornington Peninsula. Uh, one was a young boy, one was uh, a middle-aged man. 
Um, I didn't know either of them, but I was affected in such a way that I decided to leave my job and uh, set up a charity that started to educate people in in how to spot if someone's struggling, um, how to have the confidence to engage with them, because that seems to be one of the biggest problems is actually being able to ask in such a way that we're, we're hoping to get an answer rather than the old blokey, you're right, yep, then tick the box, I, I can move on now. And then who do we connect them with? Once, once someone has finally sort of trusted us to open up, um, who do we connect them with? Which professional services could could help them um, in, in, in on their journey back uh, to recovery, to, to kind of getting away with thoughts of suicide, to uh, maybe um, removing some of that depression and anxiety that's, that's tormenting them through their lives? So, yes, um, I use a program called Safe Talk. Safe Talk's been around for about 30 years. It's uh, from a company called Living Works, um, and I think it's probably the best thing out there to educate large groups of people in order to have capacity within workplaces, um, to create a suicide-safe workplace, for clubs to have parents and coaches and team managers to look out for the young people. And where I'm most impressed with it is um, Year 10 and 11 at high schools. Uh, I think it's an education that um, they're not getting at school, um, that three hours of their day um, could give them a life skill that not only prepares them for anything that they may come across with their peers, but also with their parents, their fellow teammates, their um, uh, brothers and sisters, and their best friends. Um, So it's a life skill um, that hopefully early intervention will save lives. And you mentioned that often a a conversation starter can also wind up pretty quickly if the other person just says, yeah, I'm fine. So what are the the ways, how do you teach people to start a conversation in such a way that it leaves space for a little bit more um, for the other person to, to enter, I suppose? That's a very, very good question, and that seems to be one of the biggest hurdles for people asking, is we kind of try and create a context, or we call them invitations. Um, the, the person that is, has thoughts of suicide, the majority of them have a desire to live. They're just struggling with that component, um, and they give out these invitations. And, and what we are wanting to do is train people to be alert to these invitations, um, it's things that they might see, things that they might hear, um, maybe a life lesson that's going on, maybe a divorce or they've lost someone or a pet's died. These can be triggers for um, depression uh, and thoughts of suicide. And potentially, you know, even that gut feeling that something's not quite right. So that when we do ask that question, you know, are you okay, we can say, I've noticed that you're turning up late, you're not answering um, any phone calls, your, your personal hygiene's gone out the window, your car looks like uh, um, it's filled with junk food. Um, maybe maybe something's not quite right. Are you struggling with depression, with su- thoughts of suicide? Because now we've got a context. So they go, oh, wow, you've noticed that I'm struggling. And, and look, they may not open straight away, but at least you've got a conversation starter and some context into asking these questions, which I think is really important because, yeah, if I ask and then you say, yes, my biggest fear is, oh, my God, now what do I do? Mm. And so, 
So by having actual context, and let's say it's got nothing to do with suicide. Let's say it's, no, I'm $5,000 in debt because I've been gambling. Well, then I go onto my phone and use the, use the internet for good, and I find out some gambler's helpline. Um, it may be I'm going through a marriage breakup. Let's go and find some um, relationship counselling. Um, uh, grief, there's some great grief counselling out there. So it may not be about suicide, but we've still got that context. So what is, ha- what is happening in your life for you to have changed from that happy-go-lucky to now this argumentative aggro person? Um, something must be happening, and I've been alert to it, so now I can ask the question. And I think that's making it easier for some. It's still a tough question, and it's not an easy thing, otherwise we'd all have been asking, uh, and we wouldn't be in the situation that we're at, where there are still too many suicides and too many people struggling for a long time with depression. And in terms of... um You've started the conversation, the person you're speaking to has opened up, but then there's that link between uh, hearing that someone is struggling and identifying that. But how do you um, deal with that other tricky bit, which is knowing whether they actually want help or your help? Well, there's a couple of, couple of things there. Firstly, you know, the fact that you've shown no judgment by asking them and that you are creating a we are going on this journey to help you. So we will call the doctor, we will call Lifeline, we will go down to see the psychologist. Um, Makes it easier for someone to open up because one of the biggest fears of not opening up is the the, the shame and the stigma associated with this whole suicide and depression. Um, We need to make it more comfortable for people to talk about it earlier. And so if we have an educated workforce, if we have um, an educated club, then we're creating a platform where people are more likely to be find someone that they feel comfortable opening up about. We know that judgment is a big problem. And, you know, if we look at our older generation, and I'm just under that, but, you know, I can still see it in some of the guys that have come across my path. You know, oh, it's all nothing. You'll be all right. Cup of concrete um, and self-medicate with a bottle of scotch. You'll be fine. Well, that doesn't help. We know it doesn't help. It's proven it doesn't help. Um, so we need to change that whole context. So by having people who are trained and educated, we are much more likely to be able to engage with someone who's struggling, who doesn't want to open up, because we'll be calm, we'll be patient. We may have to go visit this, revisit this a few times. Um, and maybe we're not the right person to ask, but we've observed it, and we then find someone who's better at asking the question. Yeah, and what types of um, groups and individuals are coming to the workshops? You mentioned um, community groups, schools and businesses, perhaps? So the goal of the charity, and it is a charity with DGR status, so anyone who's involved uh, wanting to run these training sessions can get in touch with us, uh, and we can come to the workplace. We run them in the workplace. So, for example, yesterday, or Monday for Are You OK, I did a a big talk to 100-plus uh, workers who were going out to Whippersnip and mow, mow the Mornington Peninsula. And then we ran our safe talk session for some of their team with the goal that within that team they now have people who are able to um, observe, uh, the ability to to um, see this invitation. Um, we do them for clubs, so the Surf Lifesaving Club, the Cricket Club, uh, 
Southern Peninsula Basketball have run what one of two that they're running. Uh, the, the breakers at Mornington are running them for all their coaches who deal with kids over the age of 16. So that's the club. And then I run them as a charity and through some donations, I'm able to run them for free or with a donation in the community. So for volunteers, mums of kids, dads of kids, um, people with an interest in this subject, people running youth groups. Um, so it's a, it's a full mix. And today I'm doing running my la, last of uh, five um, sessions at Western Port Secondary College. So their entire year 10 and their 12 VCAL have all got Safe Talk certificates, which is, you know, my big goal is that they come out of school with a certificate that um, is a life skill and that will help them with their peers, but also with them with their own lives as they go forward. Um, and I believe we start Somerville um, in Term 4. That's absolutely um, fantastic to hear. And Blue Scope Steel, for example, a large business where a lot of the, the kids of the people that work at Blue Scope Steel have actually funded um, both schools. So they have donated a large amount of money for us to run them there for all of the years, um, year 10. Um, and that is, you know, a very proud moment, one for the charity, but also for, you know, Blue Scope to look after their employees. And future people. employees. <laughs> and future employees, absolutely. Um, and when we do look in, you know, we look at some of the figures on um, some of the web pages out there, there is so much time lost um, to people struggling with mental health and, and not really having a support, a local support of someone who works right next to them supporting them, who knows what they're going through. Yeah, there was actually, I'm um, oh, sorry to cut you off there. Mm -hmm. There was actually an interesting article that I read last week, I think, in the conversation, um, and it was talking about the, the job summit, and they were saying that the missing piece was mental health and that a lot of these industries that the job summit was focusing on, such as the care industry, the people and workers are burnt out. And uh, they talked about it in terms of mental health wealth and mental capital uh, so yeah that links in very much with what you're speaking Absolutely. about that's yeah it's so important not just on a, at an individual level but uh, at a community and organizational level as well that everyone is healthy and productive well i've, I've got i've got um a beautiful example of a medium-sized business they've got 35 to 40 staff and they're not big enough to have an HR department or a well-being department. They have a general manager and they have a, a manager for one side and another manager for the other side. Now, they don't, they don't see all their staff every single day. So if something changed in one of the behaviours or there were invitations there, they wouldn't see it until it was too late. Be that that someone's already taking time off or worst case that someone has thoughts of suicide. Whereas if they educate their team, the team then around those people will spot it earlier, will spot an invitation of someone turning up you know, three or four times late, smelling of alcohol um, and, and not the happy person that they usually are. Well, then you've got someone who's standing right next to them who says, hey, mate, you're not, you're not 100%. Who then can go to the boss and say, hey, look, we need to do something about Tom. He's, um, he's struggling. I've noticed that he's struggling. Can we engage potentially an EAP program? 
we have a local doctor that we could go and get him to to start this conversation. We can't not do anything. It's not going to help. We've got to start changing the way we look at it. Um, and with early intervention, there's a good chance that someone will not be missing work, will not have to be at home all the time, that they will be wanting to go to work because there's a great support mechanism and, and some great colleagues. And I spoke at a Bunnings Are You OK breakfast yesterday and one of the guys at the end said, I just want to let you know that I have struggled with thoughts of suicide for 10 years. I'm on medication. I can function perfectly well. And I love the fact that we've opened up this conversation and he felt confident in front of 20-odd peers to let them know that he was one who has struggled. That's a wonderful feedback and um, it is a sign that through this education we can talk about these things without that stigma and feeling comfortable. And, and the other thing I'd like to say about Safe Talk is it's so good, it's so precise, it's to the point, it's three hours, so you're not sending someone away for a two-day course. It's, it's, it can be run in, in groups of 30, it can be run in groups of 15, you know, it, it's, it can be run that you have five from this department, three from this department, two from this department. As long as we can shoot uh, a PowerPoint onto a wall, we can run it anywhere. Um, and it really does give people those tools and the confidence. And what we've got since we've started, the feedback forms have been amazing, but the amount of, of emails and calls I get from people who've done the course within the first month who use the skill to save someone. And that's, you know, that, that is what it's all about. When I get a mum who calls and says, my daughter is now at Headspace thanks to you, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. I've got a gentleman who's already called me five times saying he's used it. Well, that's uh, absolutely heartwarming to hear those uh, those reports and, and that feedback, proof that this is actually working in the community. Thank yep. you very much for speaking with our listeners You're this welcome. morning. I'm going to You're post uh, information about how they can get in touch on uh, our show Thank notes. You, so you have a great day and uh, keep doing that you. great work in the community. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. That was Michael Simmons talking about the education training workshops he runs at Mental Health Safety Net, teaching people how to identify when someone might be struggling with mental health and how to respond. And you can find out more uh, by checking out their Facebook page, uh, Mental Health Safety Net. Of course, if uh, you are struggling and need someone to talk to, call Lifeline 131114. And if anyone's in an emergency situation, triple zero. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back to talk with Diana Sayed about art, war and another Afghanistan.
shine bright, shine bright. You're not alone. Shine every day. A cutie lady, so far from home. You are a beauty, star on your own. Shine bright, shine bright, shine bright. Listening to 3CR Breakfast, and that was Ruby Hunter with Kurtigy Lady. Thanks, Ella. Well, we're very excited to have uh, Deanna Sayed sitting with us in the studio at 3CR in Fitzroy. It's uh, wonderful to have our guest live this morning. <laughs> She's worked as a lawyer, advocate, and campaigner for over a decade. She has lived experience of being a visible Muslim woman of colour in Australia as an Afghan-Australian woman from refugee migrant parents. Deanna is the CEO of the Australian Muslim Women's Centre for Human Rights and she's here to talk to us today about art, war and another Afghanistan, which is a Wheeler Centre event celebrating the resilience, art and creativity of Afghanistan. Welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. So Art, War and Another Afghanistan, can you tell us how this event came about and how the strands of Art, War and Afghanistan fit together? Sure. Um, And thank you again for providing the space and centering the voices of the people from Afghanistan when we talk about where we're currently at. Uh, It's been over a year since the Kabul crisis and um, since all the troops, including the Australian Defence Forces, were withdrawn from Afghanistan. And we're a year on 
and the crisis has ensued in the country. We're facing one of the largest humanitarian crises. We're seeing women um, and young girls still denied their very fundamental human rights to education. And um, we're also approaching the two-year mark since the Brereton Inquiry, which um, outlines allegations of war crimes committed by the Australian Defence Force. And all of this narrative about war, crisis and conflict very much uh, sort of has a myopic and very reductive lens on the very nature and culture and the rich history of the people. Uh, And this ongoing sort of 20-year intervention stripped us very much of our humanity and um, all of the richness that comes from us as a people. And so these events really are about bringing that into um, sort of mainstream awareness and also to celebrate some of our culture through poetry, through music, through reframing some of these uh, dehumanising narratives about who we are as a people. Mm, Excellent. We're going to come and unpack some of those um, (laughs) comments uh, through our chat. But just to give listeners a feel for the event, it's a multidisciplinary event uh, with a film screening, a music performance and a panel discussion, which you're going to be hosting. That's correct. Can you tell us a little bit about the panel and what you're hoping to delve into in your chat? Sure. And, um, you know, we really appreciate the space, obviously, from the Wheeler Centre. And it's um, a combination of a few different strands of uh, pieces of artwork. Um, The Anthony Lowenstein uh, sort of uh, co-curated a... uh, art exhibition up in Blacktown in in Sydney on Gadigal lands, um, co-created it with Tia Cass, and it was about marking the 20-year intervention, um, and that was last year, um, before even uh, we thought we'd be in this sort of crisis situation with the um, with what happened in Kabul, and I very deliberately don't say the fall of Kabul because uh, mainstream media have framed it that way. A country doesn't just fall. It's a very deliberate sort of systematic approach to how it was handed over and through an agreement to the Taliban, very much driven by the US and Trump. So um, I'm always about reframing these narratives um, to be more accurately reflect the truth rather than, um, you know, how Western media portrays it. So to go back to the 20 years, it's a co-curated event um, and it was touring um, and the Wheeler Centre have put it on to showcase um, others who were actually evacuated from the country. So we've got Fatima Yousafi, who played for the, um, she's a footballer, she played for the national team in Afghanistan and was evacuated along with her other teammates. And they've found a home here in Nam. And she is also, she was just profiled in the New York Times front page actually this week. Uh, She's an incredible advocate and we see how sports, art, advocacy, activism, there's so many ways that they intersect and um, in amplifying the the voices of Afghan women and to showing us in the multifaceted ways that we are. Uh, We often, you know, see pictures of women in burqas completely stripped back of their humanity and their um, personality and identity. And it's really important to remember that we as Afghan women have been at the forefront of leading change in our country. You know, they'd rather show images of us in burqas rather than the very real reality of our pro- 
protesting on the streets. We're very much there, we're visible, we're present, and we're fighting back, and we're here to resist alongside existing. Um, so we've got Fatima Yusufi, an incredible footballer. We've got, obviously, myself chairing. We've got um, Barat Ali Batur, who is a Walkley Award-winning photographer and journalist um, who do- has documented his journey here to Australia and is an incredible advocate as well for the Action for Afghanistan campaign and the Diaspora Action Network of Australia and has been leading very much the campaign to have um, permanent protection visas granted for those who came here over a decade ago who were still living in limbo in Australia on temporary protection visas. So he will be joining me as well, as well as Anthony Lowenstein, who co-curated the 20 years. Um, And then we'll be having some poetry and Taki Khan will be um, our musician at the end taking us out um, for the evening. So it's, it's, you know, and it's all of the things, but Afghan culture is so rich and it's just a real snippet of it at mm. the event. Yeah, I think it's um, a really important that you're doing this and that there should be more of it. We um, had some conversations with the CEO of the Australian Women's Uyghur um, oh. Association earlier this year and, yeah, she was talking about the the rich long, long culture and uh, song work of uh, the people um, of, of her community and this gets lost mm-hmm. in the, the narratives of war and conflict and people's rights and devastation, which is, is one reality, mm-hmm. but it, it's really important that we, we hear these other parts and that you can have both spaces held. Yeah. So the event next week, uh, Art War and Another Afghanistan, can you um, talk a little bit to Another Afghanistan? Uh, It's quite a provocation and there are many ways we can interpret this. So I was interested to to hear uh, what the idea of Another Afghanistan means for you. Mm. Well, that's to the point, really. is, and, you know, obviously the event's happening next Tuesday, um, 13th of September at 6.30pm. Tickets are still available and it's a community event, so it's really just about booking um, and we'd really encourage people from the Afghan community to come on down as well. Um, but when we talk about another Afghanistan, really it's for everyone to engage um, and reflect and reframe what it is. And I really relate to what you mentioned about the Uyghur community or the Rohingya community here um, in so-called Australia and the struggles that we've all endured over the last few decades, Um, you know, living in a settler colony like um, Australia. There's so many parallels with intervention and um, the way that conflict and crisis plays out with imperialist you know, powers and ultimately at the end of the day, it's the the human cost and the way that we grieve our culture and that we lose our lands and we are forcibly displaced from our ancestral homes. We get stripped of our dignity and it's a very dehumanising narrative. So I think an event like this, which centres the voices of those people impacted and with those lived experience, because although we've experienced and endured so much, we still carry our culture, we carry our traditions, we carry all of that with us. And we don't want to just talk about our trauma. We don't just want to talk about the crisis in country we want to celebrate and you know we can hold those multifaceted feelings of grief and joy we can talk about the conflict in the country but also reflect that we are still 
people of that country and we still hold our ancestral lineage really deep within us and we don't want to be forgotten when we talk about war and we talk about these anniversary dates very sort of superficially what about those dates you know it actually still resonates in our psyche and I think it's up to those people who have been impacted to think about what that other Afghanistan might look like and it's for the diaspora community as well we've got a commitment to make sure those voices of those in country are amplified and that they're not forgotten and we live on and we you know try to do our best here to continue our campaign to have the world remember our voices. Yeah, that's so true. And the other, um, I suppose, risk in the focus always being on the refugee or economic migrant narrative is that uh, you sort of become joined as a singular group when you all are individuals leading different lives, your own lives. Um, Yeah, I I often talk about this, actually, how, um, you know, this is the very nature of dehumanising language and rhetoric used by government, um, and it strips us of so much of our dignity, but it also strips of us of the layered ways that we all hold our identity, and we've all had different migration journeys, we've got different family histories, like, um, you know, Dr Amin Saikal, who is an academic um, from the diaspora who is um, at the ANU, the Australian National, Un- National University, he talks about the mosaic nature that makes up the Afghan culture. We come from different ethnic groups, different minorities. We come from all... Uh, the country is vast. and um, We're not a monolithic community. And so... And, you know, we didn't have these borders, so-called borders, that were quite porous back in the day, part of the Persian Empire, part of, you know, all of those Central Asian states. And so um, we have such a rich history, so much of that um, people just don't seem to recognise. And that's that's actually really sad. I think there's collective grief in that. Um, and so we're all here in our different identities on a panel actually talking about that so I think that's important to see visibly all of Mm. our diversity yeah and to listen and and hear the the music and so forth Mm -hmm. um just one last question before we uh have to wrap up uh Australia's got its first Afghan Muslim woman in parliament Mm -hmm. Senator Fatima Payman Mm -hmm. how did you feel when she was elected and uh what impact is she having already? Yeah, um, and I also want to pay homage to um, the fact that my family came to Australia as refugees. We first settled in WA and I grew up in Perth as well um, and on Nungaland and um, and I think it's really important that there seems to be an overrepresentation of uh, Afghans, um, you know, really having our voices, we're having a moment. And I think that's really important um, part of our advocacy and our activism history. And people talk about stripping our dignity and dehumanising. We then see how much the diaspora has done. This is not removed from us as a people. We didn't come to Australia and become activists. We always have been. Um, and I think that's important to join those dots. Um, so seeing Fatima Payman, not only a woman, a hijabi, a Muslim, a- from Afghan background, um, I think she identifies as being culturally Afghan. Um, also, you know, um, the first hijabi in the Senate, it was huge, huge. 
uh, it was emotional. We were, you know, just stoked to see that sort of representation. Um, and I'm just as excited to see where she goes from here. She had her maiden speech just yesterday um, and all of us were just watching in awe and excited and just can't wait to see what she does next. And she will be one of many that will be coming through the ranks, no doubt, because I've seen some of these young uh, activists and community organisers, particularly during the Action for Afghanistan campaign. And I tell you what, I am looking forward to stepping aside and seeing them come through because I is tired. <laughs> so, Yeah, really exciting. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for. It's uh, just wonderful to have had you here. Thank you for having me. And please come along to the Wheeler Centre event. There are tickets still available. You just have to go online and book for next Tuesday, 6.30pm. Brilliant. And we'll put those uh, details on our show notes. Thank you to all our guests this morning. Thanks to listeners. And uh, stick around for Stick Together. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.